You're listening to Data Plus Love. I'm your host, Zach Bowders, and I'm here today with Ann K. Emery, the uh, leader of Depict Data Studio. Anne is a data viz speaker and designer, and you've probably seen her all over Twitter with her helpful videos. How are you today, Anne? I'm great. How are you, Zach? I'm great. It's just a pleasure to be speaking with you. I've sort of stalked you on Twitter for a little while, like in a non-creepy way, in a I like your posts way. Um, so it's really exciting to be talking with you because one of the things that I always hope to this podcast is sort of extend the friendships that you uh, sort of gather at work events and conferences uh, when you just have those casual conversations about uh, work chit-chat. So it's exciting to be talking with you, especially since you do something so different than what I do teaching. And I really appreciate that. Well, it's great to be talking with you because you may have stalked me on Twitter, but I have stalked your podcast for the past month. I think I listened to four episodes today alone. I consume a lot of podcasts, but I really like yours. I knew that I'll stop sucking up in a moment, I promise. But I knew when I heard your intro music, I was like, Zach and I are going to be friends. I know we are. <laughs> I know we're going to hit it off. Okay, so behind the scenes, uh, planning a podcast, you, there's a lot of considerations, figuring out how to edit audio, what's your format going to be, and your, your uh, intro music, uh, intro outro. So I went through like 150 tracks to find a track that I really wanted to use for that music. There was another choice that was better, but I wasn't going to pay $15 a month for it. This is free as long as I'm not getting paid for this podcast, and I'm definitely not getting paid for it. But having said that, uh, I had some friends preview the podcast, and they're like, I don't know, like 30 seconds worth of bumper music's a little self-indulgent. And I'm like, just wait for it. People are going to like this, or, or at least I'm going to like it. Like, I'm going to listen to it. And then other people, there's the handy skip button in whatever uh, podcast app you're using. So, you know, be liberal with the skip button if you don't like the music, because I'm not changing it. No, you had a really good quote. It was like something you learned from uh, Mike Cisneros, where it's like, you don't have to be for everyone. Be like yeah. yourself for some people. And I, yeah, it resonated with me. So keep doing what you're doing. You're on a roll. And my listener numbers prove that because I am definitely not 500 people's favorite things. I am like a little more than nine people's favorite things. <laughs> now, um, the podcast is doing pretty well, actually. I have about 4,000 downloads at this point, uh, and we launched January 1st. Um so this is, I think, going to be about our 20th episode because I've hit every other Wednesday all year so far. So it has uh, gotten to the point where it is uh, happening automatically. Editing's a lot easier. The hardest part is booking, as I've said before, because it's just, it's not fun to ask people because, you know, you're imposing on them. And also it's kind of like, it's that sort of, uh, you, you're definitely asking a favor, but it's almost like a date in an awkward way because there's that sense of like, I don't know, I'm kind of busy with work right now. Like... Maybe, maybe after the new fiscal year and you're like, yeah, okay. That sounds well, good. as long as we're sharing behind the scenes tips, you have to tell people what time we're recording this at, because I think that's a really interesting angle of just the logistics of how you make all this work. So I'm recording this at 8 p.m. Central for Anne. It's 9 p.m. Uh, Eastern. I guess it's actually like 820 almost. Uh, but yeah, it's, this is a, Usually the time my children are going to bed, actually, my nine-year-old just got back from dance. So I pulled in. Uh, she went in and immediately started throwing a fit with my wife. I walked upstairs, walked back downstairs, said, listen, I know something's going on and I don't know what it is, but I'm about to record a podcast. And unless you want this tantrum immortalized on the internet, um, you might want to figure it out in the next four and a half minutes. And then I came back up here. So I haven't heard any more screaming. So either it's become like a cold war or they worked it out. So it's, it's all great. 
I guarantee you that my husband is downstairs with the four-year-old and one-year-old giving them candy to keep them quiet, which is going to be fine in the short term. And then in like half an hour when we're done, it's going to backfire and it's going to be like tantrums all over the place. So we'll see. But you know what? That's how you make it work when you both have jobs and you both have kids. It's just like, that's life these days. So. And this is like our professional parent talk segment of this, because so many of uh, my listeners and I'm sure of your trainees uh, have kids and are professionals. And especially when you're in like a dual income home and both of you are working, you've got all the kids extracurriculars, you've got your own life, you've got your own personal ambitions, you might have hobbies, you probably don't have friends anymore. And you're trying to balance all of that at once. So yeah, it's uh, you, you can still do stuff you want. I'm doing a podcast that no one's paying me a dime for. I just do it in the evening evenings and beg people to be on it. So anything's achievable if you put your mind to it and set the bar just low enough. Well, okay. So speaking of your podcast, I know you've been having a mix of guests, but now you've started doing solo episodes or at least solo episode, hopefully, hopefully plural, hopefully you're going to do some more. And I really liked the recent solo episode you did where you talked about this distinction between two different roles. Now I'm going to try to remember them. This is my quiz for myself to see how well I was paying attention, but let me know if I'm getting the the terms wrong because I know I know a little bit about where you work, but I work in totally different settings. I'm in year seven of working for myself, so I've kind of consulted with a lot of different groups. So I don't know, each organization calls these things a little bit different, but on your episode, you were saying there's this difference between more of a traditional IT role or a software developer versus more of an analyst or a data professional. Are those the terms that you used? I think you nailed it. That's pretty much it. I had to listen to that like an hour ago. I was like, I think this is right. I think this is right. And you were saying, okay, so the traditional IT role or software developer, they're typically the people that you get these requests in for data. Let's say you're making a dashboard, for example. And some of these requests might be really specific, maybe even so specific as to say, like, we really want to see such and such chart type. We want to see these variables. Sometimes they're really specific, you know, sometimes they're not. And the typical role is like, you just make what they ask for. You just kind of like, you do it, you build it out. And you were saying the data professional, I don't know if you said this or if I imagine this, but like the value add of being a data professional is you kind of read between the lines of what's requested. And then you give them what they actually want and need. Because sometimes what let's say let's say it's your boss asking for a dashboard what they say they want and need is is different from what they actually want and need like they might say like i need a bar chart about such and such and you're like that's cool i'll humor you and make that i guess but like really your job is to push back a little bit in a polite and professional way but to push back a little bit and like really listen and ask more questions and get at what do they really need and you had some good examples of like People should go back and listen to the full episode, of course, but we'll see. We'll see if I'm getting the gist of it right. Um, this is this. Hopefully this is interesting for you too to see like how, how listeners digest the info. You were saying like, ask questions about what the data is going to be used for, what action might be taken on the data and like, you know, listen and then give them what they really need, which might be a little bit different. How did I do? Did I pass the test? Did I get it right? I think I need to hire you as like a spokeswoman for me because you say me better than I say me. I think uh, you're you're dead on with so much of this. And, and again, we're just repeating things I've said at this point. So I'm just agreeing with me. 
um, which is which is kind of fun. But yeah, as as the data professional, um, a data professional is not to say that you are more skilled than the IT worker. It's not to say one is better than the other, just that they're different roles. So as the data professional, you, you're inserting your expertise in the middle between the requirements and the user. And you're taking considerations such as audience, like who is this, who's going to be using this and what's their level of comfort with data and also just their level of exposure to what any of this is. So you could easily put together something that is technically correct and absolutely worthless. Um, and in the same way, um, if you deliver exactly what someone asks for, but you haven't laid on your professional expertise, both in understanding visualization, but also the data in this particular case, you know, you're kind of committing malpractice to a degree if you don't ask some questions and say, you know, what do you need to use this for? Because I understand the things you've said, but if they give me an answer and I know that these aren't going to add up to help them make the decisions that they need, then I, I'm not doing my job. So I do a lot of work with public health agencies like the CDC and they're, you know, they're really highly educated scientists. And I was teaching this idea in a workshop recently. And one of the people raised their hands or like a brilliant PhD epidemiologist. And they were like, oh, so we're supposed to be interstitial fluid. And I was like, wait, my ninth grade biology understanding like what interstitial what and they were like you're the in-between space that holds everything together and I was like yes bingo (laughs) that 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 is what I want you to do yeah so I um I don't know if you realized you were doing this in the episode or not because like you just said it's not like the IT professional is bad or the data professional is amazing like it's just different roles too and different skill sets you bring to the table but I think you were lightly encouraging people to be like, yeah, go ask those questions. Like that, that is the brilliance that you can add by having those conversations and like being a great listener, but also kind of like, you know, some light pushback. And I do the same in my consulting and I also teach people to do that in workshops. So I just wanted to talk through some examples that I was thinking of, but also give people a process that I hope they can follow too. So I'm going to be relying on listeners to like keep us posted, you know, reach out to Zach and I let me know if you, if you try this and how it works for you. Um, okay. So I, before I get into this, let me tell you a funny message I got from a man on LinkedIn recently. It, it, that sound that sounds like creepy. It was somebody I knew. I had met him in a workshop. He, he came to a workshop and he, he reached out on LinkedIn afterwards and he was like, Anne, you would be so proud of me. I finally got the courage. He didn't say courage. He said, um, he said B-A-L-L-S. I can't say that word out loud because my four-year-old like repeats everything. But he was like, I finally got the courage to be a rebel just like you taught me. And I was like, what are you talking about? What? Tell me more. I, I don't teach anybody to go be a rebel. Like I'm thinking of all my slides and my handouts, and my eBooks. I'm like, when did I teach you that? I taught you about like listening, communicating, like advocating, like all those cool things, like cheering you on as you do great database work. And he was like, my boss had this very specific request and the boss asked for it. And he goes into detail. He's like, the boss wanted like three charts with this time frame, with these colors and this specific chart type on these variables. And like, it was very specific. But when I listened to what the boss actually needed, I felt like that's not what they needed at all. So I just gave my boss one bar chart with like everything grayed out, except for the one bar that they really cared about. And the boss was like, this is amazing. This is exactly what we wanted and needed. Thank you so much. This is so helpful. And I was like, good. Like, you're not being a rebel. You're just like, I think just doing your job well. 
you know, like just doing a good job. So, okay, here's what I teach people to do. And we'll see, we'll see Zach, if you've done anything similar and we'll see if listeners, if they want to give this a try. So you listen to the request for data and you're listening, right? Like you're nodding, you're smiling, like you're doing all your good listening skills. You're not interrupting people mid-sentence or like getting defensive. A lot of times I used to feel like people would be like, and can you do this? And I'd be like, no, 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 that's not possible in Excel or Tableau or whatever. Like I would just freak out <laughs> mid-request. Mid like I don't do that anymore. Um, so you listen, you can ask some clarifying questions. You're mostly just listening and gathering and, oh, you said you need such and such data for a meeting. Like, tell me when the meeting's happening. Who's going to be at the meeting? You know, what types of people? How much data do they already have? Do you have a sense of, you know, wish list topics? What might they need? What might you need? And you're kind of just like listening and brainstorming. And then you come up with three ideas. I used to call these makeovers. I would tell people like, come up with three makeovers. Maybe you have the original. It's like the original could be like a terrible chart that you know needs to be revamped. Or the original could be um, a table of data. It hasn't even been turned into a chart yet, or it's like a raw spreadsheet or something. So like I used to call it makeovers. I don't anymore because I think that connotation suggests that something's like terrible and broken, which may be the case, but not always. And then of your three ideas, idea one is very similar to the original or the request for data. Idea number two, a little bit different, just a little bit different. And idea three is very different. Idea three is usually the winner. Idea three is usually what people actually need, but like you're kind of slowly 1% of the time, like getting them more comfortable with that. So an example, so Zach and I said, we're recording this at what, like 8.30, 9.30 at night. So a million hours ago at 1 PM today, I was doing a virtual workshop with a client and how can I say like what they did without telling you who they are? It's a transportation agency in a major city. So they run like the buses, you know, the subway system, they run this for a big city. So they have lots and lots of data. And we were looking at one of their charts on revenue sources. So their original chart, not the one that needed a makeover, it wasn't necessarily totally broken, just the original that we were trying to get ideas for was a pie chart with like seven or eight slices on all the places their money came from. So it was things like the certain tax program from the city, passengers paying for tickets, parking in parking garages, a few other things like the seven or eight slices. And it was also 3D. So, you know, people listening in the data community, you're probably already like, how many slices did that pie chart have? What? And like, if that's not like maybe making people cringe enough, like it was also 3D. And then it also had one of my favorite things, just kidding, was it had a separate legend on the side so that people would have to zigzag their eyes back and forth and be like, okay, wait, this blue slice is like this. And this purple thing is this. And this, it was just like, you know, we needed to revamp it a little bit. And they knew that too. That's why they were like, hey, let's do this in the workshop together. So we're coming up with three ideas together. And idea one I mentioned should be pretty close to the original. So if we started with a seven or eight slice pie chart, that's 3D with a separate legend that's really time consuming to read. Idea one was still a pie chart. I am not in the anti-pie chart, pie charts are evil camp. I think you can have some easy to read pie charts. So what we did was we grayed out all the slices except one. We decided to focus on one revenue source and that was like a dark color. So it's kind of like a two slice pie chart. You know, it gives you some prioritization. So when you look at the pie chart, it's not like 
seven different colors, like a circus tent that you don't even know what to look at, you're able to see one slice. And then we added direct labels and 3D went to 2D, but it's still, it's still a pie chart. So it's like comfortable. You know, the accountants who made that chart aren't like, oh no, this is so different. I'm going to freak out. They were able to be like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see like why you made these changes. Idea two, slightly different. We turned the pie chart into a bar chart. So we just ordered those seven slices, the seven revenue sources from greatest to least. We still grayed out everything, made just one of the bars a darker color. And then idea three, pretty different. We made an icon array of little icons, like one icon for each million dollars of their budget. So like passenger fares being one of their revenue sources that they were really interested in was um, they actually had an icon from their style guide that looked like it's like the side view of a person <laughs> sitting in a seat on a public transportation system. Um, but icon arrays are pretty different from pie charts. And that ended up being what they really needed because they wanted this kind of like overall view of the data. They had mentioned the term infographic, which infographic is tricky because it means different things to different people. But generally when I hear infographic, it means like quick wins, an overview, something not too technical, not too detailed. So I was thinking like, what gives the overview of this data? Like it's probably not the pie chart with seven slices. It may not be the bar chart. Maybe it's this icon array. Maybe it's idea three. So I come up with them usually in that order. Like, okay, let me just tweak the original a little bit. Okay, what's the next idea I have? That's idea two, I'll share with them. Idea three is probably gonna be a little bit different because I'm more advanced in my thought process at that point. But then I share all those three ideas back with the group. We talk about the pros and cons together so that they they feel more ownership over the process that way too. And then they can say like, oh yeah, now I can see that a 3D pie chart with seven slices and all these different colors. Yeah, I can totally see how it makes sense to change things up a little bit. Like I really like idea two and three and they'll usually, a lot of times actually people will say like, oh, idea two would be great for this report and idea three would be great for the slideshow. So they can start to think about different formats or different audiences that might benefit from each of these ideas. Have you done anything like that, Zach? I haven't done that uh, as explicitly. I've done that in exercises and classes I've attended. Oftentimes it's sort of a combination of working with or essentially whatever your client is, whether that's someone internal, external, however that relationship works for you, uh, and trying to be iterative to some degree and sort of finding their level of comfort and also data literacy. So I'm actually exploring a little bit of my, my thoughts on this in a journal article I'm uh, working on right now. But one of the things I find most important in terms of constructing a data viz is your understanding of who the audience is. Like, who is this for? Because if you don't know who it's for, it has to be for everyone. And if it's for everyone, it's really for no one. Uh, it's impossible to satisfy all audiences to sort of uh, bridge all gaps. Um, so part of my, my thesis around this comes from uh, I am I am deeply nerdy, so it's a book called Understanding Comics, written by Scott McCloud in the early '90s. So Scott McCloud is a deep uh, thinker in terms of visual literacy. So he sort of traces his thoughts on this back to like 1300 BC. You know, because uh, people have been pictorially expressing ideas for a very long time, and a big part of the process of taking something visual and explaining it to someone is the idea of closure, in the sense that. In everything you create, there's a silent partner that you have, a second creator 
which is the audience. So when you're constructing your visualization, you and the audience are both pouring meaning into this, and you're not always going to be able to stand next to it, hold their hand, and explain to them exactly what it means. So uh, in his book, for example, he uses a, uh, a picture of a grocery store aisle, and it's two liter bottles. And you can see part of the image on each one, but you can't quite see what they are. But it's enough from your life experience to put together, oh, it's a row of Pepsi logos. I don't see a single complete Pepsi logo, but I'm able to take the incomplete thoughts here and take my knowledge of grocery stores to say that's what this is. Um, so in the same way, when you're doing a data visualization project, people at the organization you're working with have an understanding of their organization and their data, but also in terms of just visual language in general. And the better you can understand their level of both literacy and confidence and competence in this, the better you can leverage their own creative ability that they're bringing to it to figure out what you don't need to say. So part of it is what you need to bring to it. And the other part is what can you leave out? So if you're working on uh, some geographic data and people are wanting to know what sales look like for the United States, what's the real question they're asking? Do they really want to see all 50 states right here? They may. That might be valid. But if they're really wanting to see the winners and losers, you might be able to get away with like two uh, stacked bar charts or not stacked bar charts, two bar charts showing you the uh, the top five and bottom five states. That might be exactly what they need. But the temptation would be, well, I need to show them all 50. They don't need that necessarily. They know there's 50 states. You don't have to remind them of that. I mean, it might potentially help if there was some geographic component that was consistent, like if the eastern region was always in the top or bottom. But for the most part, you can sort of take leverage um, many of those ideas and sort of use them as a silent partner to help you get your ideas across better. And you can tell it's a partially formed idea in my own head about how this ties to data is, but it's a work in progress. So no, I love it. And you were mentioning knowing like who your audience is. And I think let me share another idea with you. You tell me if you've thought about this one. I feel like one of the most important things to understand about your audience beyond just like, these are supervisors, this is the executive director, this is a general public, like not just their titles or their roles, but I think the most important distinction is whether your audience is technical or non-technical. And my very fancy definition of those is technical is, uh, I'm going to guess you, definitely me, it's people who like data. We love data. We want to open up the data file and be like, ooh, let me find patterns today. This is so fun. I'm going to do this in work and outside of work because it's a hobby. Technical people. We like data. We're in data careers on purpose. I think that's like 1% of the population. It's a lot of our friends, probably. It's a lot of our colleagues. But I always have to remind myself, like, and just because you love data and you love decimal places and you love tables and you love nuances and you love drilling down and finding patterns, 99% of the world is non-technical. They don't like data. Data is a chore for them. They'd rather be doing something else. They're very smart. They're very highly educated. They're very hardworking, but they have a skill other than data. And that's like 99% of the groups I design dashboards and infographics and slideshows for is like, they want to be out. I work with a lot of federal agencies. So they're the people who are like, managing the budgets for these multi-million dollar agencies. They're hiring staff. They're, you know, just managing all these projects. They're making policy. They might be going to Congress and like testifying before Congress and sharing all the data, but they don't want to be the one like digging through the weeds of the spreadsheet. 
They want somebody else to do that. So I think just recognizing which one you are, if you're technical or non-technical, but then which one your audience is and recognizing when there might be a difference. That is so, so, so critical for getting like the right chart type, the right level of detail, the right dissemination format. Like, is it a dashboard? Is it a one pager? Is it a detailed technical report? Like it just informs everything else about the planning process um, because gosh, you had a good quote. I'm going to have to re-listen to this and write down what you said. You said like, if you design for everyone, you end up designing for no one. Like if you try to meet everybody's needs, you end up meeting nobody's needs is what I heard. So I, I fully, fully agree with that. And I think in my line of work, I, I do see groups with dashboards a lot, but I also see a lot of groups with really, really long reports, what I call the dusty shelf report, where they're like, well, chapter one is for this audience. And then chapter two is for this other group. And then chapter three is for this other group. And you end up with like 50 million chapters and like a hundred or 200 or 300 pages trying to meet everybody's needs, but it's like not fully meeting anybody's needs. So that's a tricky situation at the end for sure. And the worst thing about many of those dusty shelf situations is a lot of people don't want to say anything because if you speak up, it gives the impression that maybe you don't get it. Maybe you don't understand. No one wants to be the one in the room that raises their hand and says, this doesn't work for me because no one wants to feel foolish. Even if it's not really you being foolish, it might be this thing really doesn't work, but no one wants to be the first one to do it. Um, including uh, oftentimes the, the person making a data visualization. Maybe you read some requirements, you made what those requirements said, and you're looking at this and you're not feeling super proud of it. You're looking at it saying, I think we can do better. I don't think this is going to be what they need, but I don't really want to be the one to say something. But oftentimes someone has to be the one to speak up. And that's where that is another responsibility incumbent on the analyst. It's not really a responsibility. It's a privilege. Being able to speak up is pretty awesome because that's one of the things you're being paid for. You're not just being paid because you can make a pretty looking chart or because you can dig, in, dig into the data. You're being paid because you're going to be like the Lorax here and you're going to speak for the trees and say, if we do this, no one's going to use it. And I say that as someone that's made stuff that no one has used before. And there's nothing more painful than that as an analyst. If you made something and you go and look at the views on it, especially like if you worked with people, you took requirements, you had checkpoints along the way, and six months later you come back and no one's looked at it, you feel like a major failure. And no one wants that because what you want is something that satisfies the needs that people really have and those people want something that's answering their questions for them so that they're not like quietly going to someone else on the side and like getting sneaky little one-time ad hoc reports to try to like, you know, patch things up. I mean, I, I guarantee you half of you are thinking this right now. And if you're not, you're way better at this than I am. So that's the beauty of being an external consultant and a trainer is because I am paid to speak up. That is my job to come in and like assess what's working and find very specific areas where we can make improvements. So um, I, I'm very comfortable in that role of being like, hey, tell me, I have this whole self-assessment. It's gonna be a blog post soon. So I'll like post it on Twitter when it's done or something, but it's, it's a self-assessment to think about where are your reports, dashboards, slideshows, et cetera, like when were they actually used? And what were they actually used for? To think about like, tell me some success stories of when did this actually influence a staffing decision? a budget decision, you know, some real life policy decision. I told you I work with a lot of public health groups. Like when did this actually inform public health policy and like changes in communities? And it's the self-assessment of looking at four warning signs of like the first one's like, 
you would think would be obvious, but it's so common. People forget it's a warning sign. It's like you finish your report dashboard, whatever it is you're making, you email it off to somebody, maybe post it on a website, like you finish it and you don't get any response. It's just, it's just like there it's out in the universe. It's attached to an email maybe, but nothing happens. Maybe you get an email that's like, thanks, I received this, but that's it. You know, it's like, it's not actually informing things. So yeah, I think just recognizing that for a lot of us, that's what we are hired for, whether you were a a full-time salaried employee or whether you're a consultant or freelancer, like that is such a big opportunity for us to add value in our jobs is to be that person to say like, Hey, let's talk about this a little bit. You know, let's look at this dashboard with fresh eyes. Let's talk about what's working about it. What do we want to tweak about it to make sure it's even more useful? And like, I don't know, just being the role model for other people you work with too, of like starting that conversation is so valuable. I think a lot of us just, I don't know, it's not like we get in a rut. 2020 is a hard year. I don't want to pick on any of us too hard. You know, it's definitely been rough, but it can be so easy to just, you know, we all get in a routine and we're kind of like, oh, we did this report this month and now the next month they report to do. And like, I'll just keep doing the same thing and just having the bravery really to stand up and be like, I'm going to look at this with fresh eyes and make it the best it can be. Cause I just have a sense that there's an opportunity to make it better. Well, I think everyone has a data hero inside of them. And uh, part of that is sometimes uh, being a champion for better standards, but also maybe just being a cheerleader because a lot of people, like we've said, um, aren't really data people. And one of the things you can do is remove the obstacle for them of being afraid of data. So whether that be you know, doing things to encourage their confidence in the data through showing validations in a simple way, saying, hey, look, what we're doing here, this is accurate. Or alternatively, showing cases of friends and coworkers of theirs that have had success in using something. Nothing quite knocks down some of those barriers, like showing someone that other people have confidence in use something successfully. Because, I mean, like, like we've said, everyone's afraid. It's your job. No one wants to look bad or dumb or or cowardly for that matter, but having someone else out there to be a champion and sort of building this cohort of allies that are going to, you know, be enthusiastic and say, hey, look, I use this thing and it's working for me. That gets other people on board more than you saying it sometimes. So, you know, build your build your network uh, at work and get people invested. So um, we are approaching the end of our time today. And I just want to thank you for coming on. It's been really a, just a real pleasure to speak with you. Like I said, I've been stalking you for a while. I've also been following your adventures. I know you got like COVID grounded. You were traveling full time for over a year or the better part of a year? About a year. Yep. About a year. Exactly. We We sold almost everything. The house that we lived in. I was a landlord. I had a paid off like rental house that not on purpose. I bought a house in 2007. I'm like, you know what happened with that? You can't sell it. So we just rented it out for a decade. I mean, I sold like, we sold our mattress from out from under us. Like I worked on my laptop on my lap for like a month with no office furniture and then took, and my husband quit his job, which was a huge move. And then we packed up the kiddos. Our youngest is only six months. We're like flying to Africa to go teach, you know, there for a week. Like I've got all my belongings and carry on luggage and my six month old in my lap. And like, part of me is thinking like, what am I doing? And then part of me is like, this is amazing. We're living our best lives. Um, but yeah, COVID kind of put a wrench in our plans. So we're in Florida for the time being. Well, for the time being, and we bought a house here. So 
at least a few years, maybe longer. It's been pretty nice so far. That's really exciting. I've enjoyed watching your adventures, especially you hauling the kids around on this. And I mean, it's something that's definitely doable. I had a my early Tableau trainer, Tableau Tiff, who uh, got to see me win a Vizzy last year, which was very exciting for me. As much as winning the Vizzy, having my trainer there for it was kind of a special moment for me. But I remember, uh, and this this does not speak to her quality as a trainer. She's an amazing trainer. But one of the biggest questions I had was she told me and my buddy David that she travels full time and lives out of four bags in a golf bag. And so she told us that at the end of day one training. And when we returned to day two training in the morning, she asked, does anyone have any questions? All of my questions pertain to how you do that. Um, so I, I was I was kind of fascinated by that. So I saw you living a similar adventure and particularly like just in such an exciting time to be alive. That's the way I'm choosing to look at this. This is an exciting time. We're all going to talk about this for years to come. Sort of you being in a transitional period during all that just looked to be a relationship like this huge adventure that you're going to tell the kids about one day and they're probably barely going to remember it all. Well, I think my four-year-old does remember because she'll, um, you know how kids make up their own languages. So she'll like speak a bunch of who knows what kid language. And I'm like, Dakota, what are you saying? And she goes, oh, I'm speaking Spanish because we were in Guatemala for a couple of weeks, right? Or she goes, and or she's like scribbling and she knows all of her letters. We've been doing pre-K virtually and she's just like making up random symbols. I'm like, what are you writing? Oh, this is Japanese. I'm writing Japanese because we were in Japan for a month and a half too. So I'm like, she remembers enough. Like she can't speak Spanish or actually write Japanese, but like knowing we were there, she was at the pediatrician just yesterday. And um, the pediatrician's like, wow, you used to travel full time. You went to like a dozen countries. What's your favorite country? (laughs) And she goes, Atlanta. (laughs) I was like, nice try. Nice try. Almost. We don't understand geography quite yet. (laughs) Well, swing and a miss kid. Uh, But again, thank you for coming. And as we wrap up, is there anyone you'd like to shout out or anything you'd like to promote before we finish today? Oh, gosh. Um, I was just a judge for Iron Viz. I got to see the top 15 entries and they were fantastic. So shout out to everybody in Tableau who organized that and everybody who submitted. I don't know how many total submissions there were, but the top 15 I got to see were outstanding. You could tell they were so thought out and so detailed. So anybody who has submitted in the past keep doing it. And if you haven't submitted, go for it. Zach, as you know, I'm like kind of in the Tableau community, but kind of not. I'm more like software agnostic slash Excel, but I was actually getting really inspired looking at these visualizations being like, oh, I should totally do this next year. But then would that be weird? Like I'm supposed to be a judge, but now I'm a submitter, but whatever. We're all trying to improve our skills. Um, Yeah. So if you're, if you're thinking of doing Iron Viz, go for it. I saw really, really high quality work. I agree. If you are thinking of Iron Viz, do it. That includes Anne. Thank you for all of the entries. Thank you for the three finalists who will be seeing compete in just about two weeks at uh, Tableau 20-ish, which will be entirely virtual this year. 100% free. Everyone sign up and attend. You'll have a good time and you'll learn a ton. And more importantly, you'll come away fired up with new ideas for your job. Thank you for coming on, Anne. I really appreciate this. Thanks, Zach. Bye. Bye. Data Plus Love is recorded and produced by Zach Bowders. Our music track is We Are Legends by Alex Stoner. Hey, you're still here? Um, You're probably waiting for like the next podcast uh, to kick in, probably something better. Um, Thanks for hanging on. Anyway, if you're picking up what we're putting down, uh, consider buying us a cup of coffee. 
on ko-fi.com slash d-a-t-a-p-l-u-s-l-o-v-e. Um, just, you know, drop $3 in our tip bucket. It helps us buy better equipment. It helps us uh, pay for razor blades to keep me from looking like a wolf man. And it keeps uh, Mark's head looking so shiny and beautiful. Anyway, thanks for listening. We'll never put anything behind a paywall. And thanks for your patronage. Have a great day. Hey, thanks for sticking around to the end. I really appreciate you listening to the Data Plus Love podcast. If you'd like to see more about what we're up to with the show, go to anchor.fm slash data plus love. Just spell it out, not a literal plus sign. Here you'll be able to see our library of episodes as well as interact with them either through polls or comments or leave a voicemail message that I'll put on an episode. You can interact with me personally by joining me on Twitter. I'm at Zach Bowders, not hard to hunt down. And if you like what you're hearing, consider leaving a tip for us or signing up for a small monthly donation at our ko-fi.com slash data plus love. Buying a cup of coffee for the show is just $3, and you can get more if you choose, or sign up to give that $3 or more monthly. Either way, I really appreciate it. Lastly, if you'd like to see more of my public data viz work, check me out on Tableau Public. So go to public.tableau.com and search for Zach Bowders. I'm the only one. You won't have trouble finding me. I promise. So thanks again for hanging on to the end of the show. I really appreciate all of your listens. And until next time, this has been Zach Bowders for the Data Plus Love Network.